What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan. I am joined by Jared, and uh, we'd like to wish you a happy belated Easter. By the time you get this, Easter will be long past, but that doesn't stop us from talking about it. No. It took us a while to rise from the, the grave. Yeah, we were dead for longer than three yeah. days. So we realized that we have never done a episode on the resurrection. We've talked about it a lot in the context of Christianity and arguing with people and all that sort of stuff. We never actually like done an episode on Jesus resurrection. And since this is a mostly skepticism, but also atheism channel, we felt like that's something maybe we should address at some point. So here it is. Well, we not only to- here it is, but it's a first parter of a two parter. Two part episode. Right. So there's a lot that could be said and has been said about Jesus resurrection, the foundational story of Christianity. We're going to examine it based through through the lens of its most popular argument, which is the minimal facts approach. And we're going to get into everything that is in a minute, but this is the most popular way. It's not the only way, but it's the most popular way that apologists argue for the resurrection. So we're going to use this as kind of our framing to talk about the resurrection, the evidence for it, and what we think perhaps a better explanation is. So we're going to, first part is going to be, what is the minimal facts the evidence, that sort of thing. And then the next episode next week, we're going to compare this minimal facts approach with some natural, you know, good for you alternative, vegan perhaps uh, alternative, and see which one actually stacks up. Cool. Well, what so, is the minimal, minimal facts though, right? Like, what is it? So the minimal facts approach is a method for arguing for the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. Resurrection, like divine resurrection, a miracle. And this was pioneered by Gary Habermas. He's a theologian. He teaches at Liberty University, which is uh, an extremely Christian university. <laughs> and, but it has been taken up by many others, most notably Mike Lacona, who uh, we'll get to later. We'll be mostly focusing on Lacona's version of this argument, but it was pioneered by Habermas. The basic idea is, it's a pretty good idea, honestly. They take certain facts that are very well grounded, uh, both in evidence and also accepted by nearly all scholars, regardless of those scholars' philosophical or theological persuasions. And based on that, they see them as like virtually indisputable facts. So it has to be supported by good evidence, but drawing on the vast majority, like virtually everybody who's educated on the topic, if they all agree, even if they're, whether they're Christians or agnostics or atheists or Muslims or Jews or whatever, the argument goes, that makes it less likely that they came to this conclusion of this fact being true based on their bias or whatever. And so that gives us even more confidence in this uh, fact. Supposedly. Yeah. And it seemed like that's all plausible. That it's not to say that the majority can't be wrong, of course. But you know, we're not making an argumentum ad populum fallacy. If you want to know about that, check at the end of the video where we'll be talking about it. But uh, we're not saying, and they are not saying that just because all experts think this or most experts think this that it is true. However, uh, as we've discussed many times on this channel, citing experts is not fallacious, <laughs> especially if they're experts in the field you're citing them on. Right. And if virtually every expert in the field is convinced that A is true after having examined it and everything, then we ought to accept that A is true unless we have a really good reason not to. Right. Yeah. And uh, because experts are usually right, you know, 
And while you always have to worry about bias, if people from conflicting viewpoints both agree that this thing is true, that kind of eliminates that a little bit. And so the idea is they argue from these facts, these minimal facts, that the best explanation of those facts is a divine resurrection. And it's important to point out, too, that the reason they break it down to minimal facts and the reason that they're using things that are undisputed by um, you know, secular scholars, atheists, um, non-Christian scholars, is the fact that Christians also believe other things in the Gospels, but they know that if they use that as an argument for the resurrection, that it's easily to refute, right? Or to at least put some doubt on that, whether it has some historicity behind it. So by... Going with this route, they're able to say, look, these facts here, nobody complains or disputes them, and then best explains this. So we'll get into the whether it best explains it later, right? Right. But. And this is a, an approach you might take in any kind of argument. You know, if you're discussing something with somebody, you might say, okay, well, where do we agree? And then if like, okay, you agree with me on A, B, and C, and from that alone, I'm correct. That That's a pretty strong argument. If you can get your interlocutor to agree to the to the minimal things they need to agree with in order to come to your position, then that would be a good argument. Of course, um, I might not agree that the resurrection is the best in, uh, explanation, in fact, but we'll get into that next week. So what are these minimal facts? The list of minimal facts varies depending on who's talking. <laughs> so there's no like one list that everybody uses. Uh, and and even the people who use them don't use them consistently throughout time. Habermas's list fluctuates between uh, from like two and twelve. Dozen, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. From like three to twelve, depending <laughs> on the day. Uh, so maybe when he finally finishes his, what is it? It I've, it's some ridiculous length of twenty five hundred citations magnus opum, magnum opus, yeah, yeah, yeah. which he's been working on. The the so we're going to be talking about Lacona's uh, dissertation, which is from two thousand nine, and I checked, and he hasn't significantly changed his views. Uh, relevant to minimal facts since then. So we're going to be mainly drawing on his dissertation. During the dissertation, he talks about this yet unpublished magnum opus. And that's 14 years ago. So yeah. uh, we'll see if we'll see if we actually ever see that. Uh, but anyway, the, the list of facts varies over time, depending on who you're talking about. We are going to go with Michael Kona because he is a New Testament scholar. He is a Christian apologist. He's very conservative. Uh, but he tries... He, he obviously is putting forth an effort to try to come to good conclusions. He's, you know, very diligent in expressing his, both his assumptions and also what evidence he's using to come to conclusions. We don't necessarily agree with his conclusions, but I don't think anybody could say that he's a dishonest scholar. Like, even yeah. if you disagree with his, with his conclusions, I don't think anybody thinks like he's lying or, or doing shoddy work. Right. And, uh, We've expressed this before, but both of us respect Lacona just as a person. He's gotten into hot water for saying things like he thinks that the uh, zombie parade in Matthew was allegorical language used because it's an apocalyptic image. And he didn't get fired, but did get like forced out of his, you know, evangelical position, which, you know, sucked for him, I'm sure. And he's even said things like he's only 80% sure that the resurrection is true. Uh, like he has occupied that position at one point. I don't think that's what he thinks now, but you know, to, to, for someone in Lacona's position to say, yeah, this thing that's like foundational to my being is probably yeah, 80% true. Like that's uh, you know, that's, that's not a small thing to say. Especially somebody comes from such a conservative background and somebody who came up 
underneath Habermas as well, you know, in like the Liberty right. circle. So, so for all those reasons, we're going to use Mike's list and Mike's list are one, Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans Two, very shortly after Jesus death, the, the disciples, his followers had experiences that led them to believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. And three, Within a few years after Jesus' death, Paul converted after experiencing what he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. Yep. Those are the three. There are a couple others uh, that Mike Lacona doesn't include in this list. But if you're on, uh, if you ever go on YouTube and you're looking at resurrection arguments, a lot of these will pull up. And some simple ones like Jesus was alive, like Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus lived in in like the you know Judean part of the Roman Empire at that time. Cool. So you know, um, another one. Jesus believes he had a special relationship with God, who had chosen him to you know usher in the kingdom. So this eschatological, like he was the person who was going to bring this about, right? So, uh, and I think there was a couple more too. Uh, he had a reputation as a miracle worker and an exorcist, and so those are some of the more common ones that you'll see. Yeah. Depending on whose list you're drawing from. And to be clear, these are things that Mike also thinks are true, but he doesn't include them in his list of minimal facts, or he calls it the historical bedrock, right? right? Um, so we're, even though I would accept, I mean, obviously Jesus was alive and he lived in Roman Judea. Cool. And I would also accept that he believed he was an agent of God, agent of God, had a special mission. Uh, and I'd even concede that he had a reputation as a miracle worker. Because, I mean, it sure seems like he did. But because they're not included in Mike's list, we're not going to include them in our list. Right? We're just going to stick to the top three. Also, we're not going to be uh, considering mythicism in this context of these episodes, we do a bunch of mythicism com uh, content elsewhere in case you've missed that. Mythicism is the belief that Jesus didn't exist as a real person. He was mythical from the get-go. So uh, we're not going to cover that. We're going to assume that Jesus existed. If you want to see our mythicist stuff, go check out those videos. But just so we don't get a, you know, I'm sure we'll get it anyway, but a parade in the comments like, oh, what if he didn't exist at all? We're leaving that aside. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we're presupposing Jesus existed for these arguments. Um, we Which actually just we, goes to show that we're fake atheists, we're just fake, like everybody fake always atheists. said. So we have we have these minimal facts, right? But one thing we want to ask ourselves: Are people like Lacona and Habermas are they actually using good historical methods to get to these facts? Are the people are these undisputable facts actually a good part of history, and do they support you know, reliability? So right. that's what we're going to look at now, right? Right. So are are these minimal facts indeed facts, right? That would be a good first step. So <laughs> if <laughs> if we're going to check if they're good history, we should know like what does good history look like? What 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 if we're going to be amateur historians, how should we go about figuring out what happened in the past? So one of my undergraduate degrees is in history. So like uh I want to point out at the start, there's no such thing as a perfect source. Like Every source has inherently as part of it, you know, some form of bias by the writer and all that stuff. And we also have to remember when we're looking back, we're looking back into a different culture at a different place at a different time that was usually written in a different language uh, and through a different worldview. So we can never truly understand the original intent or you know the place ourselves for that original context. We just can't do it, right? Yeah. It, the the these things were written. 
for the people in their time. They weren't written for us 2,000 years later. You know, as often people, particularly with religious texts in the Bible, want to read it as if it's communicating to them. And, you know, from a theological standpoint, perhaps it's communicating something to them. But the person writing on the parchment was not thinking of them (laughs) 2,000 years from now, right? (laughs) Well, it was divinely inspired that way. So this is, uh, here's a quote that I like. This comes from a book called um, From Reliable Sources, An Introduction to Historical Methods. And it's written by Martha Howell and Walter Prevenier. If you want to read the book, you can, um, but this is kind of goes in historical methods. So the quote is, historians are prisoners of sources that can never be be made fully reliable. But if they are skilled readers of sources and always mindful of their captivity, they can make their sources yield meaningful stories about a past and our relationship to it. I really like that quote because it, it means that we are always in a box that we can never get out of but we can use tools to our advantage to try to come to a really good understanding and get something out of it. Right. So, right. Understanding that the goal is to find out what probably happened, never what definitely happened because we can't know. And also understanding that there may be things that did in fact happen and we have no way to know it. Yep. So, so, so what are some of those tools then? That's what we're going to look at now. Yeah. So if we're just looking for a source, if we could just, paint a source or make it whatever we wanted, what would we be looking for? Well, we'd want to know of this kind of story we're getting from the past. We'd want this story to be attested by multiple independent sources. The idea It's pretty common sense. The more people that you have saying a thing happened, that we're in a position to know that a thing happened, the less likely it is that all of them are wrong, provided they didn't like collude with each other beforehand, right? So if James saw something and James told Paul and Paul told Peter and Peter told Sue. And then Sue tells you, you don't have four sources. You have one one source, right? (laughs) Uh, But if all four of them, none of them knew each other, they all saw an event from their different perspectives and they all then tell the story, you know, there's probably going to be things that they don't agree on, whatever, but then you have a basic story attested by multiple witnesses. So they would all have to be wrong in order for the story to be wrong, which it's the more witnesses you have that are reliable, the less likely it is that all of them are wrong. Yeah. The easy way to think about this is like the car crash, you know, thing you have five different people who view a car crash and they all get set aside and the police take their statements. They're obviously going to record the information differently, but there's going to be similarities in those statements. And then they can take those similarities to try to recreate what probably happened. Right. They all saw a car crash. Yeah. Like they all agree a car crash happened. That's pretty yeah. good evidence a car crash happened, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's uh, multiple attestation. Yeah. So another thing you might hope for is that the attestation you have uh, comes from close to the thing they're testing about, very uh, close in time. And geography, too, would be great. Um, ideally, you'd have a primary source, like someone who saw it themselves, who's recording it. A great example of that would be like... Uh, Caesar's conquest of Gaul. We've got Caesar's writings, yeah. right? He literally did it, and we have his writings about it. And of course, his writings are full with all kinds of bias because he's writing this source, the story for a purpose. But you still have a primary source of it, or there's primary uh, witness accounts of the eruption of Vesuvius, right? With Pompeii destroying Pompeii, yeah, it's got little singes at the bottom of the paper because they were getting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but there's like, there's there's like stories for people who like literally saw the thing. You know, that's yeah. a primary source, right? I mean, ideally, and, we'd like video evidence, you know, maybe or yeah. something. <laughs> I'm not gonna get that though. Uh, so pre- close to the as close in time to the event as possible. 
Um, secondary sources would be sources written by people who didn't witness the event themselves but are still reporting on it. Um, that can still be very useful because sometimes they have a different perspective. They might be able to pull in more than one account. Um, and it's not to say that necessarily that the, the a report you get soonest is the most reliable. Sometimes, just again, let's take it to modern history. If an uh, explosion happens downtown and you just like grab people running from the explosion and ask their thing, and then later, like a week later, you're like getting people and talking to them and like putting their score story. That second one's probably better, even though it's a little bit later in time. Same thing can happen here, but all else being equal, you'd rather get the story from somebody about a thing that happened last week today, rather than waiting 80 years and then talking to them. Yeah. And and this also too, so early things too, could not just be writings. Like they could be art, you know, artifacts or pieces of like coins, things like that, you know, all kinds of other stuff you could use. For yeah. That. That's, that's a great point that historical evidence isn't just writings. It's also archeology. span It can be pottery. It could be coinage. It could be statues. It could be a lot of different things. Inscriptions, graffiti. I, aside, I think the graffiti that you find in like Roman cities or in garrisons is really, really cool because it shows that humans have not changed at all in 2000 <laughs> years. Like you go to graffiti and it'll be like the Latin version of call Susie for a good time or Centurion Gallus is a dick. Yeah, There's a, there's a dick and balls on every like, you know, outhouse somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Uh, okay. So early multiple people, um, people close to it. Uh, ideally, you'd want someone who's disinterested, someone who doesn't have a vested interest in the thing that they are reporting. We or, know that even that, that everybody has bias, but if the person is reporting something that doesn't affect them personally, or um, we have reason to think they might be less biased, that'd be great. Yeah. This is often called enemy attestation. And they, the person or the people writing this down or, or whatever evidence you have for it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be supporting it. They could just be writing on it, right? They could be doing like a contrarian thing to the point, but they're still talking about that event. So, Right. And, you know, off, you're not, like you said before, you're never going to get a truly unbiased source. But yeah. again, we're talking <clears throat> ideal here. Um, and you want something that's historically plausible. It, you could think of this as like fitting in with the things we know are true from other sources of evidence, whether it's something like uh, it's physical evidence, like the fact that Rome exists or whatever, you know, the city was founded at this time and we can tell that through archaeology or other accounts we have that it's fitting through. Um, an example of this, for instance, if somebody in the Roman period attests that so-and-so was crucified by the Roman as punishments for this crime, that's a thing that fits within the historical context of things that we have good evidence for elsewhere. And so that is a plausible count. Doesn't mean it's true, but it's more likely to be true than it might otherwise be. As opposed to say, uh, I don't know, they were going to crucify him, but then they decided to make him emperor instead. You know? Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is where you have to look for like anachronisms, right? So putting something mm -hmm. in from the future back into history, that's what we would look for. And this, you do see this sometimes, like people are like, oh, you know, and then Jesus, Mary called up, you know, Joseph on the phone, like, uh, wait, what? Like, so. Right. Or <laughs> what'll happen is they'll talk about uh, traditions or right. like feasts or things that didn't like, Say this is they're writing 300 years later, they'll say, Oh, and when this historical figure celebrated this feast, and that feast didn't exist at the time, you know, <laughs> or 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 he visited this town that wasn't 
did, wasn't hadn't been founded yet or yeah. whatever, you know. So th- those are things that you might be looking at, seeing if the thing fits within the, host, the historical context. Um, yeah, so these are the kinds of things we'd be looking for if we were looking for a good source, something that we could rely on um, to see if something actually happened. So we're going to take those tools and we're going to look at some of these pieces of evidence, those three historical bedrocks that we have. Now, re- remembering that we don't have any perfect sources, right? So. Right. None of our sources are going to fit into these boxes, and they're not going to be like a perfect fit. But right. No. Okay. So the first fact: Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Okay. So uh, this is multiply attested up and down the board. Everybody who talks about Jesus talks about him being crucified. Mark first talks source, about it. Matthew talks about it. Luke talks about it. That's three sources right there. Boom. Too easy. And then Luke and Matthew's Q. No. So <laughs> the Gospels are together one, yeah. possibly two, depending on how you feel about John relating to the other three Gospels. And the Gospels are certainly not an ideal source to say that we, you know, they are not disinterested. They were written by people of faith, for people of faith. But whatever else they are, they are documents written in history by people in the first century that recorded things they believed were true. So that's one source talking about the thing, even though it's very friendly to the topic, right? Right. But that's not the only source. Another source would be Paul. He is also friendly, but this is a person we know. Uh, it's not some anonymous person. And uh, Paul, in case you don't know the story of Paul, he uh, was a persecutor of the Christians. Um, we And we know these things from Paul's writings. Paul tells us the, these things in letters, so we know it firsthand from him. Um, Paul was a Jewish person in the first century who persecuted the Christians uh, because he believed they were heretical or that they, they weren't, you know, kosher. And but he had an experience, which we'll get. That was one of the other facts. But he had an experience that led to his conversion. He became a Christian at some point, right? And then he found a bunch of churches and stuff. And in one of those letters to a church, uh, or many of his letters, he talks about Jesus being crucified. An example is his letter to the Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, 20 to 23. Uh, he says, For Jews ask for signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. Uh, he also mentions it in Galatians. He mentions it all over. Yeah. So, I mean, there, so there's that. So we have Paul specifically mentioning the crucifixion. And that's important because um, he could have easily just had like, this idea, and this kind of goes against some of the mythicist arguments, which we're not going to get into here, but Paul clearly thinks that Jesus was crucified because he talks about it. So, Right. It's very clear that it's not just that Jesus was killed or died. He died in this specific manner that Paul attests to. It's also uh, kind of as an aside, Paul mentions that this is a stumbling block for Jews, for his own people, for the first followers of Jesus. Like, because the Jewish Messiah wasn't supposed to lose. He was supposed he to was, come in and crush heads. <laughs> right, right. And so it's, so the idea is that this Messiah was going to be a conquering hero or like a great priest or something, somebody like, like, like a ruler who was going to overthrow the order and like bring the Jews back to where they were supposed to be. You don't, but what happened to Jesus is he got beat to hell and put in a, put in the ground, you know? So that was a problem for the Jews, not so much for the Gentiles. And so that, this is a little bit aside, but it would be something you'd 
be less inclined to make up as a Jewish follower of Jesus because it's a very strange thing to the Jews. Some people would call this the criterion of embarrassment, but we're not going to get into that because that's something that only Christians tend to use. So, uh. Speaking of Christians, both the sources we've been talking about, Gospels, Paul, both Christians, but they're not the only sources mm-hmm. we have. We also have hostile sources, people who were not themselves Christian that talk about Jesus being crucified. Uh, one example would be Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman, a Roman historian. He lived from 56 to 120 CE. Uh, Most of the writings we have from him are for the latter half of that, like second century. He was a historian, and he is regarded by modern historians as like a good historian. He often cited his sources. He would talk about their bias. He would like, if he doubted something or thought it was dubious, he would say so. Like he'd he he would express doubt and why he expressed doubt. Um, So he he was especially by the standards of his time, he was an extremely uh, rigorous and diligent scholar, right? So he mentions Jesus in his work, uh, The Annals, and he's talking about the burning of Rome, which happened in 64 CE. So if you're not familiar, Nero set some stuff on fire, (laughs) needed to blame somebody, so he blames the Christians, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, The argument is that Nero wanted to, like, (laughs) rearrange the city, but it's hard to rearrange the city when there's, like, a city in the way, so he burned it down. So, Uh, now... (laughs) This is the ancient form of gerrymandering, so... (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, it's unclear whether he actually did it on purpose or whatever, but for whatever reason, people thought he did. And that's the important thing. So Tacitus writes, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. An order from the context given by Nero. That was the belief at the time. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, the extreme penalty being crucifixion, it is kind of impolite to mention it sometimes, but that's the extreme penalty. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So yeah, here mean, we have... I mean, we this is coming from somebody who's an enemy. One of the common uh, things is like Tacitus was, was just spitting back what he heard from other Christians. And so he's written, but we have to remember Tacitus was in a position as a Roman uh, citizen, as a historian to actually check up. Yeah. As to check up on these sources and given his other writings, we have, if he was uncertain of something as Jordan already alluded to, he would specifically state that this isn't necessarily the the strongest argument. So. um, Right. So, given how he clearly doesn't, he doesn't seem to have a high opinion of Christians. And so, and most Christians were not uh, elites. Most Christians were slaves or lower class people. And so if Tacitus were just like, oh, I heard it from a slave, it seems unlikely given what we know about Tacitus that he would just be like, oh, must be true, you know? So we have a person who's potentially in the position to know who says basically all the, the major points of the Christian story that, these, these are people who follow a guy whose name is Christ. He died in, Ju- in Judea. We did it. Pontius Pilate, you know, the whole shebang. We also have to remember, too, in ancient times, it wasn't like we had a Google 
And it wasn't like there was easy access to information. And so around the time that he's writing, we still, like the gospels are still being formed and written. Like John was probably writing his gospel like right before this. So it's not like the information's all the way out there, right? Yeah. So. And, and I don't think there's any reason to think Tacitus had read Mark. Like, yeah. Like, no, that, that's what I'm getting Mark. at. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, like, so the gospel's written uh, probably in the 70s. 70 to 100-ish. 100. So like, yes, they were written during Tacitus' lifetime, but why would Tacitus have written this freaking like thing written by a superstitious cult? Like, there's no reason. And it's and again, it's not like this is like put on a bookstore on the corner, like Amazon's right. top 100 or whatever, you know. And it's not if like Paul's wanted, letters were making us all the way up to yeah. Rome for Tacitus to read either, you know. So if Tacitus wanted a copy, but you have to go like get a copy and like write it down, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> okay, so that's Tacitus. Uh, another hostile source would be Josephus. Josephus was another historian. He was Jewish, but worked for the Romans, uh, following a very savvy maneuver in the first century. <laughs> oh, don't Jewish kill me! <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, he was like, "Hey, everybody, our fort's about to be taken, so we should all kill each other so we're not captured alive." I'll go last, and then yeah. <laughs> he gets the last guy. It's like, "Hey, we shouldn't actually do that, right? Let's go." And then he gets to the Roman general. It's like. Oh man, you're gonna kill me! Wait, I just had a vision that you're gonna be emperor. Isn't that amazing? And then he's emperor. <laughs> so that's how Josephus got to be where he is. So Josephus wrote about uh, Jewish history, and his audience was for the Romans. So like he was writing about his people to Romans. And one of those books he wrote, or well, had, it was a series, the Antiquities, many books. Um, we've talked about the antiquities before. He mentions two relevant facts. One is about James, the brother of Jesus, which is relevant to Jesus existing. But the other one that's relevant here is the much maligned Testimonium Flavianum. Mm. Uh, the Testimonium is, at, in its current form, is a glowing statement about how amazing Jesus was and how he was definitely God and all this other stuff. Like, he was the Messiah, rather. He was, he was a miracle worker. He was the Messiah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's stuff that no Jew would actually write. Uh, so this thing is contested by scholars. Most Josephan scholars, so scholars of Josephus, who are themselves mostly Jewish or secular, but there are some Christians too, uh, most of them think that the Testimonium Flavianum has a historical core that was later changed by um, scribes. And they think this because a lot of the verbiage is distinctly Josephan. And if you kind of take away the stuff that like is very clearly not Jewish, you're left with something that sounds kind of like what Josephus would write and it fits with what he talks about elsewhere and stuff like that. Yeah. But, I mean, you could take Josephus out, right? We still have Tacitus. Uh, we have Paul and we have the gospels. So we have, it's multiply attested. You could Give or take Josephus. And I would say, you know, if I was arguing this from a Christian standpoint, I probably wouldn't use Josephus um, myself, but it's there. Right. Uh, moving on to other, the, the other things we said we'd like. This is um, historically plausible. This fits with what we know happened at the time. The Romans took a very dim view of people disturbing the peace. And uh, if the things that we know about Jesus RTV believed, he was disturbing the peace. Josephus, who we just mentioned, he talks about other messianic figures of the first century. And to a man, every single one of them is killed by the Romans. <laughs> and when the Romans wanted to kill you and wanted to make it, like, make a statement, they did it through crucifixion. So the idea that they would take somebody who they thought 
was disturbing the peace or more likely was like inciting revolt and put him on a cross outside of Jerusalem is completely in line with what we know about the Romans. Particularly and, given that Pontius Pilate was procurator over this area and he was very ruthless. And so this is something that would have been well within what he would have done. Right. Uh, if you if your only knowledge of Pontius Pilate comes from the Gospels, you might get this image of like this very like wishy-washy. What should I do kind of, with him? I don't know. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. No. According to Josephus and Philo, Pilate was he was too ruthless for the Romans, and that is saying something. Yeah, he kept getting like, in he, trouble. Like, dude, stop messing with the Jews. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so, if you want to hear about Pilate, you should go check out what Josephus say about him because he's not a good dude, <laughs> and he definitely did not care at all about offending the, the no. Jews. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, it's historically plausible. Fits what we know. Um, we've got it from hostile sources, and the things we're getting here about the crucifixion, particularly when it comes to Paul, are coming from pretty close to the event. Paul is writing uh, in the 50s CE, but he, by the time he's writing, he's already established these churches he's writing to. Yeah. All of our writings are like letters he's writing to churches he's already established throughout the Mediterranean, except not every single one that he established, but they're churches that were established, like Romans he had, yeah. he didn't personally establish. But in any case, um, so clearly, like he didn't, do that establishing yesterday, you know? So he's converted. It's not sure exactly when, but if he's writing in the 50s, he must have converted much earlier than that, probably in the 40s, right? And he's, so Paul knew about Christ's crucifixion at least that late. And we think there's good reason to think that Jesus, if he died, if he uh, was killed in the early 30s, so. It's pretty, I mean, for when it happened, where we are now, that's pretty darn close, right? I mean, So as as little as a few years, as much as perhaps ten. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the specifically talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. So these this is the historical evidence we have that supports this. And based on this evidence, most scholars, secular and Christian, believe that the crucifixion of Jesus by Pontius Pilate is something that is historically reliable. It's not just most like virtually well, when i say most like 99 <laughs> percent, it's i don't know the yeah. exact number but it's a lot you'd have to dig hard to find one that didn't so that's the first one uh the second of our three pieces of historical bedrock are that the disciples meaning quote followers during his lifetime uh, of jesus had experiences that convinced them that jesus had risen from the dead that jesus was alive post-death yeah. so i'd like I like how Mike Lacona words this uh, and how Gary Habermas words it because it's, it's very clever how they do it. Had experiences. They don't just say his followers saw Jesus rose from the dead because that's what they right. believe. But in order to make it a historical bedrock, they do a little wordsmithing. Right. So uh, that moves it from something that might be a statement that isn't able to be supported by history, which one, which possibly could be. So let's again run down the list. Uh, again, we've got it attested from multiple sources. Um, going back to Paul, Paul uh, gives what is believed to be a creedal statement. So a statement of a creed, like a catechism, uh, a f- kind of formulaic thing that people would say in order to remember it and pass it on. You know, it's it's hard to remember a bunch of, you know, facts, but if you can like compress the story into kind of a catchy sort of poem that people can repeat, you know, then it's then it's more likely to get passed along, right? It's a meme. Yeah. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 8, he says this meme. 
The meme is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, meaning the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, uh, so, uh, most from whom most remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So the important pieces for right now are that in this creedal statement, which is not something that Paul came up with because it's a creedal statement. He didn't make it up. He's repeating it. But this creedal statement includes that Jesus appeared to Peter and to James. These two people critically are people that Paul knew because Paul tells us in the letter to the Galatians that he met both of these people after Paul converted. Yes. And so Paul personally knew them, uh, the people who claimed to have seen Jesus post-death, right? So that's the whole point of this. Um, the dating, so we'll get to the we'll get to the, the dating on this in a minute, I guess. Yeah. Other sources, obviously the gospels say that people saw Jesus post-death and the Acts, which is written by Luke, same author, Luke Acts, kind of written two-volume thing, um, also attests it. So you've got multiple attestation. One of those sources isn't the best being the gospels, but it's still a second source. Most The most important source for this would be Paul, who specifically knew two people who claimed that Jesus had appeared to them. Right. Um, again, the dating of this would have to go very early because not only are we now getting it from Paul, who we already discussed was pretty early to the movement, but this creedal statement doesn't originate with Paul, scholars believe. And so that means it go, that goes even earlier. How much earlier? Hard to say, but earlier than... Yeah, you know, 10 years probably. You'll hear some estimates as early as three years to 10 years. So like, even if it was five years, I mean, that's pretty, you're pushing back these facts, uh, these bedrock facts, pretty close to the supposed death of, of Jesus, like around 30 something. So. And kind of like more fundamentally, this almost has to be true, right? Just for the religion to happen at all, because you have this guy, Jesus, who was doing his preaching. He got killed by the Romans. He died. For there to be a religion centered around him not being dead, there had to be people who, for whatever reason, believed he's not dead, right? And presumably, those first people wouldn't have just been like some random person who never heard about Jesus before. Though that would actually be a decent argument for the authenticity of this, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. like, presumably, that's not who like was like, oh, I'm going to make a new religion. Uh, it was like people <laughs> who were like, already involved with the movement, you know? So it's like, We've got attestation, we've got these things, but like it almost just has to be true in order for what we see. What, in order for history to have happened the way it happened, this has to be true, yep. just about. It doesn't have to be true that their visions or whatever were authentic or like they were correct in their beliefs or any of those things. But again, that's not what this point is. The point is that they had some kind of experience that convinced them. The other thing that we want to make sure, so when Jordan says this has to be true, that doesn't mean that the uh, the creedal statement, like he saw, he appeared to 500 is true. It just means that this bedrock fact that he, the disciples had experiences that led them to believe he had risen yeah. from the dead was true, yeah. right? Some subset, some of his followers. Whether that's some two to 12, we don't know, yeah. but like. One yeah. to 5,000, whatever. Some number of his followers had some kind of experience that convinced them. That's the only thing this fact is saying. Yes. Okay. Right. Lastly, kind of in the same vein, Paul, who was hostile to uh, to Christianity, 
Uh, Paul converted to Christianity after experiencing what he interpreted as an appearance of Jesus to him. So this one uh, is, in terms of, like, we've been starting multiple attestation. I don't know, like, we get it in Paul, you get it in Acts, but, like, Luke probably, had like, knew at Paul, you know, so, like, maybe not multiple attestation. But critically, we have this from the guy it happened to. If you're not going to have a bunch of sources, you want to get it from the guy himself, right? So that that's pretty right. good. Yeah. Right. Like we're talking about somebody's internal experience, their lived experience. Uh, if you want to know about that, the person is probably a good yeah. source, right? Now, Paul doesn't tell us a lot about this experience. Um, he tells us that like, you, you've probably heard the story of like the Damascus Road events and like most of that is from Acts. Yes. Which may or may not be true. Paul himself doesn't like go into all this detail, but Paul does talk about having gotten experience. And Paul throughout his epistles talks about having Jesus appearing to him. This is like, he talks about the conversion story itself, very little, but the fact that he sees Jesus and like speaks to him is throughout his letters. It's one of the most important things that Paul thinks about himself. Yeah. I mean, it's, and so like, there's not much more to say. Like, if, if you want to know whether the guy thinks that he saw Jesus, the dude is telling you he thinks he saw Jesus. Now, whether or not he actually did is a different question, but we're asking not whether he did, but whether he thought he did. And he's telling you he thought he did. And he thought he did. So, right. so those are, the, those are the facts. It's interesting too, because a lot of times uh, when I've heard the minimal facts arguments or the historical bedrock, um, usually the empty tomb comes up, right? Like that's a big one. For sure. The empty tomb being the the idea that there was a tomb Jesus was buried in, and it was later discovered empty. And this is something that apologists point to all the time, right? That is the message of Easter, the, the empty tomb. And Lacona and Habermas both think that the empty tomb is very reliable history. But Lacona, neither one, uh, Lacona or Habermas, include it as part of their minimal facts or historical bedrock, which I think is interesting. Um, the reason for this uh, that is that um, while most scholars of the New Testament accept the empty tomb as history, according to Habermas, this falls largely on theological lines. So like if someone is not Christian, they're less likely, not guaranteed, but less likely to think that the empty tomb is historical fact. Yeah. And that for Lacona and, and Habermas sends up a red flag. Like, well, okay, well, if it, it's like, it's one thing if like a bunch of people with different viewpoints all agree. But if it's like all the Christians think this and the not Christians think this other thing, well, maybe bias might be involved. You know, I've even heard Gary Habermas go as far to say, like, even if Jesus was on a cross and was thrown into a mass grave and dogs came by and ate his body and then they burnt him, even if that happened, he still showed up later to people with his risen. So it doesn't make a difference if he was in a tomb or not. Like, you know, I, I haven't heard Gary say that, but like that has been my feeling for a long time. Like I get, okay, it is important as a historical fact and like all those sort of things, like from that stance, it's important, but like, God can make a new body if <laughs> yeah. he wants. He made a whole universe, right? Like, yeah. it's not like, oh man, yeah. dog, no. oh, they put it in a grave and oh. a dog ate it. My entire plan is ruined. Like, was there like actually a Jesus 1.0 that like <laughs> did get thrown in a mass grave? And he's like, like damn, I gotta do like, this all over again. Like, 
yeah, we were so close. <laughs> Is it like all those, maybe, maybe all those messiahs <laughs> that Josephus talks about were like Jesus trying over and over. Dude, that's hilarious. Oh, <laughs> we got to come up with like a book or a movie about this. Like God just keep trying to get the messiah and he finally gets one to stick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like Groundhog Day. Just yeah. showing back up in heaven. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, but because of that, yeah. um, the they don't include it in their three historical facts. Well, there's also um, some points too, which don't really fit in with the historical plausibility, right? So for example, it wasn't the typical Roman practice. So as we just talked about, the mass grave would be more typical for something like this. Right. Even Gary Habermas, the guy who like came up with this whole thing, he concedes that the typical practice of Romans was not to give you a respectful burial. The disrespect of your body was part of the punishment because in the ancient context, that was a big deal. Being buried properly was very important to a wide swath of the populace. And so like this was a way of the Romans saying, not only can we hurt you, but we can also mess with your body. You know, and so like they'd be up there on the cross, rotting away and being eaten by carrion or thrown in a disrespectful common grave or whatever. And anyway, not laid to rest in a nice place covered with oils and stuff. That was not generally how it was done. We were talking about early attestation, like Paul, who's our earliest writing for this, doesn't mention an empty tomb. Right? He just talks about right. having appearances and that he died. So he in part of that creedal statement, like I believe it's a creedal statement, he was buried. But buried doesn't mean buried in the tomb necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. So crucified people were not typically done. That doesn't mean that they were never taken down from the cross. We do have accounts from Philo, who was a Jew living in Alexandria in the first century contemporary, who talks about a person being taken off the cross. But from the story, the person is being taken down from the cross because there was a celebration for Caesar. And it was seen as like to basically keep the, get this person off the cross before the festivities happened. That's why he was taken down there. Uh, also uh, Josephus talks about him like beseeching somebody to let him get his friend off the cross. Um, and we, there's like one bone that was found that had like of a crucified victim. It was found in an ossuary, which would be like a, so appropriate burial. And we know it was a crucified victim because the nail into the wood was still there. Like they couldn't get the <laughs> nail out. Evidently, so, they just, like, yeah. so they just cut the rope. So, but critically the, the stories we have of these things happening are clear that these are exceptions. Yes. And so the question is, was there an exception for Jesus? And as we mentioned before, Jesus had the terrible misfortune to live under Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate didn't give an F about Jewish sensibilities and, and was not a nice guy. So there's reason to think that he would not have granted an exception to Jesus. Doesn't mean that he didn't, because on the other side, buried in the tomb is multiply attested. But you know. Counterpoint, there is multiple attestation to the empty tomb. So Right. That is a counterpoint. Even though that attestation comes from the Gospels, which are problematic, they do all agree that uh, there was an empty tomb. So whatever. That's why it's not included in the minimal facts, even though you hear it all the time. Another one you'll hear all the time is from that creedal statement from earlier, the 500 witnesses that Jesus appeared to. And you often hear this like, isn't it ridiculous? How do you believe that like Jesus, like did all of those people hallucinate? And well, I mean, maybe, but like, uh, we don't have to explain that because here's here's how it's pitched often. It's like 
Look, Paul told the story about 500 people, and he said that some of those people are alive and you could go check. He invited the reader to go check on a story. That's how confident Paul was on this story. Okay. Uh, who are the people? Where do they live? Give me a list. I'll go check. Like About that. <laughs> don't ask questions like that. So if you actually read the statement, like even obviously we can't check. But like imagine you're part of the audience. You're in the church of Corinth and you get this letter from Paul and he's like, and and for some reason you're having doubts that Jesus like rose from the dead or whatever. And you read this story, this thing from Paul, or it's probably read to you because you can't read. Uh, it is, he says, 500 people saw him, and some of them are alive, and you want to go check. Who are these 500 people? Where are you going to go? Who are you going to ask for? You don't know anything about them. You know nothing other than some guy said 500 people somewhere at some point saw it, right? And like, not like, to mention that Corinth is in Greece, and Jerusalem this- is in Judea. Like, right, which would not have been a trivial – like it's not like that sort of travel never happened. Of course, people traveled all the time. But it's not like, oh, I'm just going to hop in my cart and go to the next town over. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah, so there's no indication, no way that any of Paul's audience could have possibly checked on the story even if they'd wanted to. And, and if this is part of a creed, then Paul is just passing on something he heard from somebody else. Exactly. Paul doesn't necessarily I – mean, maybe he did – but Paul doesn't give any indication that he had talked to any of these people. It's just something he heard. Yeah. And that should not strike anybody as weird or unusual because that's how these stories happen now. Like if you talk to somebody who is giving you a miracle claim, most of the time they'll say, oh, this other guy, it happened to him. And you could go check with him if you wanted. Like I've heard that's that exact thing has been told to me more times than I could possibly count, you know? <laughs> And then like, you push for it, and then next thing you know, like, whoa, well, well, yeah, exactly. So the five hundred witnesses, not like it, it's something that the Christians believed, but it's not something we should include in our historical bedrock as it, like it actually happened. And that's why Mike Lacona does not include it. So. And Mike Lacona does not include it. One last thing that um, is often brought up that actually Habermas includes, or sometimes includes, but Mike Lacona does not, is that James, the brother of Jesus, who um, scholars believe, most scholars believe, did not follow Jesus during life, converted and believed in Jesus post-death and had a vision experience or had had some kind of experience that convinced him. Yeah. It's pretty clear that James obviously had an experience that convinced him because he became a central figure in the church in you know Jerusalem and um, all that area. So like, obviously that happens. But as far as like whether or not he had a conversion – that's a little iffy because the sources we have for that are primarily the gospels, right? So Right. So some scholars, not many, a handful, uh, but a couple scholars argue that James was always a follower of Jesus. So James Tabor would be one example of a scholar who thinks this. Um, he believes that Jesus was the beloved disciple. I won't go into all the reasons he thinks that, but he argues for it. But he's, even by his own admission, definitely in the minority there. Um, Mike Lacona's hang up is that one, some people disagree, even people, um, Christians disagree, two, that we can't be certain, even though the creedal statement says that James had an experience, we don't have any writings from James, and he could have converted from hearing somebody else's story, right? right? Maybe Mary told him about a vision or something. And 
the ultimate reason why the Kona rejects it is even though this is something that most scholars in the field accept as true, there isn't much writing about it. It's just they don't really it, – it's kind of a fact they include, but there's not much literature that Lacona had in 2009 like hashing it out. And because of that, he didn't feel comfortable including it on his list of facts. Yeah, I would feel comfortable including this from a standpoint of James had an experience as the brother of Jesus, which made him believe. What does seems pretty important. Like if, if somebody's going right. to think that this guy came back to life and it was the brother, that seems more credible than a follower – Right. Uh, if I were putting together my list of minimal facts, I'd say that James, the brother of Jesus, had an experience at some point that convinced him that Jesus had risen from the dead, which would really make it just kind of like a subset of point two. Right. Because whether he was a disciple or whether he was a follower later doesn't matter. Like at some point, this dude had an experience is the point. Yeah. Right? And, and if that's the case, this comes up into that thing. But the conversion thing is is not on right. solid terms. So that's that's it. So those are the facts. That's the history. Right. So to recap, the minimal facts approach is a common, maybe the most common approach among Christian apologists to argue for the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. Okay, the, the uh, taking things that virtually every scholar agrees on in history that are backed by solid evidence and arguing from these facts, we can, uh, the most reasonable conclusion, the best explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I want to be clear, neither Jordan nor I believe that, right? <laughs> right. So what we've done today is we've gone through what these things are, what is the actual evidence that backs up these things that could should convince us that these are, in fact, historical facts, that these are things we can rely on. And we've talked about some things that you'll hear all the time that aren't included. So what we're going to do moving forward into next week is we're going to talk about these three facts and compare how the different explanations hold up, whether the resurrection is in fact the best explanation for these three facts, or if maybe possibly there might be some alternative explanation. I don't know. I don't want to spoil it, <laughs> but I suspect that's going to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but you got to watch to find out. So but you got to watch to find out for sure. Yeah. Maybe next week will be our big reveal where we're actually Christians. <laughs> been Christians the whole time. Just like yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So fallacy of the daytime. What's today's fallacy? We already mentioned it, but. We mentioned it. We teased it. The argumentum ad populum, uh, or the argument from popularity, to be less pretentious about it. Everybody believes X, therefore X is true. Yep. Uh, depending on how it's phrased, you could look at this as like an appeal to emotion, like, oh, you idiot, everybody knows this, you know, sort of thing. Or uh, kind of <laughs> like a bandwagon fallacy, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Like, you know, you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be one of those, you know, people who doesn't like join the cool club of people who believe in Jesus or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Uh, why is this fallacy? So this is fallacious because just because everyone believes a thing doesn't make it true. Right. So the mere fact that everyone believes in a thing does not necessarily mean that thing is true. But it doesn't make it not not true. Right. Exactly. So there's a, there's some nuance here that you, some pitfalls you could fall into. First of all, the fallacy is talking about like just like people everywhere as like a broad population. It is not talking about experts who are qualified to speak on the topic, who have special knowledge and expertise. Yeah. So if I were to right. say the scholarly consensus for X is this, therefore X is true. That is not necessarily an well, argument at populum, right? Um, you'd probably say therefore X is probably true. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, but yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, that would not be an argument at populum because you're not saying 
people everywhere, everyone thinks it's true. You're saying the experts who are in a position to know think it's true. But that will Therefore, oftentimes get casted as an argument to mad populum. So right. Um, also, sometimes everyone believing a thing is actually good evidence of that thing being true. So, for example, if you were arguing that I don't know during New Year's Eve last year there was a flying saucer like swooping through Times Square or something crazy I don't know and like you went through and like talked to everybody who was there like everybody believes that's false so, like that would be good evidence that it's false it's not a not an argument I'm yeah. like there's a good reason to think so or like so basically if if the thing so everyone believes it's true if the thing uh, being true is far more likely in the situation where everyone believes it than it would be if everyone didn't believe it Basically, if it were true, everyone would have to believe it's true. Then it could be actually good evidence. Yeah. Or it could be a supporting piece of evidence. But it's not that that is the only thing that makes that thing yeah. true. So, so. yeah, the, the nuance there is it's not the, that everyone believes it. Like, come on, join the bandwagon. Like, don't be the one that's left out. That's not that is the fallacious version saying, hey, everybody believes this. And if it were not true, then people wouldn't believe it and here's like a reason why that is true, that isn't fallacious. Then you're just like, then the fact that this is a common belief can be evidence in that in those instances. Yeah. So. Okay, so probably, you know what? Just just ignore this fallacy entirely, just so you don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't know how to, how to explain a fallacy, you shouldn't be using it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so that's our show. Uh, tune in next week when we're going to talk about the probably far more interesting part where we're actually going to put the resurrection to the ringer. Make sure you subscribe, hit the bell uh, to, so you get notified on that for no other reason. We definitely don't have any vested interest in you doing that. Uh, <laughs> if you want to talk to us about uh, this thing or if there's some piece of evidence or some kind of nuance you really want to make sure we hit for next week, leave it in a comment below. We will certainly take a look at it. Uh, but anyway, until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.